It's the Rush Fancast. Jerry and Steve with you as always. Jerry, what's up? Oh, not much, Steve. How are you? I'm good. I'm very excited today for two reasons. Number one, we have a great guest today. That we do. Number two, we've been getting some great emails about our Grace Under Pressure episodes, which recently aired. Yeah, I know. The weird thing, Steve, now if it's weird for you, is that people evidently like to hear us talk to each other about things. I have no idea why. Very strange. Very strange. So we try and bring you some good guests. And then when we don't have a guest, people are happy to hear us talk. Yeah. Which is cool. Nobody else I know is <laughs> happy to hear me talk. Exactly. I forgot to remind everybody, Jerry, you can find us on Twitter at RushFanCast. Instagram, we are the TheRushCast. Email Jerry, the rushcast at gmail.com. The base intro is always, Jer, done by our good pal Lex. Yeah, I was going to guess that. And I hear you've got one of those emails to read for me right now. Do you not? I do. This is actually, I read an email from this gentleman before, uh, Spencer Courtright. If you remember, he is uh, a professor of biology at the Indiana University Northwest. Okay. He wrote us about the trees. All right. Do you remember that email about mm-hmm. the trees? So this time he's writing about acid rain. If you remember, we talked about acid rain and I said, whatever happened to acid rain? Like, is it still a thing? Do you remember that? Yes, I do. Just an early warning. He says, hey guys, in Grace Under Pressure episode one, you mentioned Neil's lyrics referring to acid rain and you wondered what the status of that problem is today. The acid rain problem stems from burning of coal for industry, which releases nitrogen and sulfur compounds into the air that form acids, sulfuric acid and nitric acid that fall downward in precipitation. If a lake cannot buffer these acids, the lake becomes more acidic, which results in many problems, such as the release of aluminum ions from nearby soil into the lake, which is toxic to fish. In a time period when the U.S. government was less partisan, Reagan approved funding for research on the problem, and George H.W. Bush signed legislation to reduce the nitrogen and sulfur emissions from coal burning by the use of scrubbers, a nice technological advance. In the past three decades, then, many vulnerable lakes including those in the U.S. Northeast and Eastern Canada, have improved. Acid conditions are less and other aspects of chemistry are changed. Fish and other animals vary in their responses. Some lakes have rebounded well. Others are rebounding more slowly. But overall, the acid rain problem is a fine example of government trust in science, action on science, and technological advancement, all with the benefit of improving the environment while maintaining jobs. Wow. How about that? Pretty cool. So acid rain is not as much of a problem now as it was. Not as much as a problem, but since it's caused by the the burning of coal, could be a problem in the future. Huh. Interesting. But there you go. Ask and you shall receive. Thanks so much for that email. We really appreciate it. Yeah, definitely. And Jerry, we've got an amazing guest today on the Rush Fancast. For almost three decades, he's made incredible music with the band The Flaming Lips. He's also a huge Rush fan. Stephen Drozd, welcome to the Rush Fancast. Ah, thank you for having me. And you said my name correctly, so. Research, Stephen, research. <laughs> it's like what people say, Neil Peart. I'm like, I think it's actually Neil Peart, but I'm not sure. So. <laughs> Let me check. I think it's, I think it's Pierre. Let me check. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm happy to be here. Um, you know, I could talk about Rush all night, and um, you, I really like your, your podcast. So, yes, wonderful. No, thanks so much. Uh, why don't you start, Stephen, by telling us your Rush origin story? When did you first hear Rush and how did you become a fan? Okay. Um, I had two older brothers that were just classic 70s stoners, you know, and they were into, you know, Led Zeppelin, Pink Floyd, Black Sabbath, all, all those guys, you know, 
And the first rush record I remember was Caress of Steel. I remember being six and then into seven and just staring at that album cover for hours and listening to Didix and Narpets over and over again because it was just so weird, you know. And uh, the song No One at the Bridge on the second side used to really, really scare me when I was when I was young, but I got over it. But yeah, I just really immersed myself in, into them early on. Caress of Steel being the first record. I mean, Bastille Day, Lakeside Park, all that stuff is just, it's just so seared into my brain. And then when 2112 actually came out, my brothers got that. And I do remember the day they came home with all the world's a stage because they were just so jacked up about it. So that's my, you know, I started, started listening to my older brother's records and, and then they moved up out of, moved out of the house and I continued listening on my own. And uh, yeah, just, uh, man, they really were part of my life. I have to be honest till about grace under pressure. And then I kind of trailed off, but uh, till then they were a big part of my life. So, yeah. <laughs> so when did you first start playing music, Steven? Was Neil Peart a huge influence on your drumming style? He would have been in a way, yeah, you know, because I try to think about this, and I always think it's John Bonham, but I think my earliest drum influences, because I started playing when I was uh, eight, for Christmas of uh, 1977, my dad got me a really small drum kit, a bass drum and a snare and a cymbal, and he said, you know, if you're still playing this in six months from now, I'll buy you some more drums, but I'm not going to buy you this whole big setup, you know, and I remember I would show him the cover to all the world's a stage, he's like, well, there's no way he's using all those drums. I'm like, Dad, check this out. The drum solo working, man. He's like, oh, it actually sounds like he's using all those drums. But you, you know, stick to the basics. And he wanted me to learn like uh, polka beats and waltz beats and country four on the floor beats. And the rock and roll thing was something to do on my own time because I ended up playing in his band when I was pretty young. But um, my earliest influences, I think, were like Joey Kramer from Aerosmith, uh, Peter Chris. It was John Bonham involved in there. But Brian Downey from uh, Thin Lizzy and then Neil, Neil Peart from Rush were – I think my earliest, those are the guys that were on my radar. Roger Taylor from Queen. He was definitely on my radar too. Uh, but I wasn't, I didn't start investigating drummers per se until I was like 11 or 12. It was a couple years later, but those are the earliest guys. And Neil Peart was definitely a part of that, you know, for sure. But I think early on his drum fills just seemed so out of the universe I was trying to learn in, you know. Uh, a big day for me was like learning the beat to walk this way. That was like, oh my God, I really... I think I figured this out. So you can imagine I wasn't really ready to do the drum fills on like uh, anything from uh, Farewell to Kings or any of that stuff. So, um, but he was definitely, he was definitely on my radar by the time I was 10 or 11. Yeah. Did you ever master any of those fills? I, you know what? I wish I could find it. There's a, uh, an audio tape of me playing subdivisions with a cover band when I was in 10th grade. And I heard it about 15 years ago. And I actually thought it sounded pretty good. Uh, <laughs> I didn't have, I didn't have all the toms to do all the fills, but I had, I think I had, Four rack toms from two different drum sets and two floor toms. You ever seen that show Freaks and Geeks? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It was kind of like uh, Nick's uh, drum set. Mine was kind of <laughs> like that. But, but I got, you know, I got the cymbal, all the, all the cymbal uh, patterns down, and I got a lot of those really fast six, 16th and uh, into eighth note, you know, co- concert tom fills across. I was kind of surprised at how good it sounded. So there are a couple of fills that I will never be able to figure out how he did it. The opening intro to fill to a digital man still is like, I just can't grasp what is happening there. So, but a lot of this stuff I did, I did sort out over time. In fact, I would, I would have these jam sessions where I would just crank up rush really loud and I'd have my friends come over and just sit and I had this shed in our backyard and my friends would come over and just watch me play to rush records for, you know, two or three records. It was pretty fun. (laughs) (laughs) Now, you know, I have this quote from Neil that I think is applicable to your band, the lips. Okay. He said that there is no such thing as that doesn't suit Rush. Those words have never been uttered. Now, I, I view the Flaming Lips sort of the same way. I don't think you guys say no to anything, you know, creatively. How do you feel about that? 
No, I would agree. I think, um, and somehow it's actually gotten easier as we've gotten older. You know, it's, it seems like we've, we've taken chances on things and things have worked out. So that encourages you to take more chances, you know? So, um, but I think even before I was in the band, they were just, they were just their own, own people, you know, and they just did things their own way. And when I joined the band and started working with Wayne and writing and stuff, it was always very encouraging. You know, it's like, even if you want to bring in influences of country music and you know anything. So, um, yeah, I, I think uh, Flaming Lips is definitely an anything goes kind of situation. You know, don't you know, don't don't be afraid to try anything. I, I would definitely agree with that. Well, it's an interesting thing about all of the different styles because when most people first became aware of the Lips was transmissions from Satellite Heart, right? But as we got to the late '90s, you were kind of a different band completely. Like, how did you navigate those different areas from like the grungy kind of sound? Which, yeah. Not that you were grunge, but through that whole musical kind of landscape to get where you were, say, like in 99. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it was a few different factors. Um, you know, transmissions from the satellite of heart, you know, it was uh, enough of a hit to give us some life, you know, with the record company. But then our next record, Cloud States Metallic, came out in 1995, and it really tanked. I mean, by anyone's standards, it just did not sell well. And um, right around that same time, we were just touring and touring, and we were getting really sick of our just kind of rock band format. And then our lead guitar player, Ronald Jones, who was just such a part of this, the sonic landscape of the band at that point, you know, so many of the textures and wonderful things that you would hear played on guitar were him. He quit the band at that time. And so it was, it was Wayne and Michael and me, just the three of us, and we were trying to figure out what we were going to do. And we decided to not even try to be a guitar band anymore, just try to become something else because I think we were sick of that whole thing anyway. You know, it's like we take that as far as you can go. I mean, all the bands that we were in league with, it seems like everybody was getting burnt out, you know, and Electronica was kind of getting more popular, or however you want to perceive that. And at the same time, we had, we had such a low profile for a couple of years that when Warner Brothers started firing all the bands that were from the grunge era, we were lucky enough to just kind of lay low and we didn't get canned because we were so low on the, their radar, you know, and uh, our manager Wayne got Warner brothers to give us a budget to make Zyrica, which is this crazy four disc uh, music installation art. Pro, I don't know what you want to call it, you know, the experimental thing. And then make soft bullets with the same budget. And so during those times from 96 to 99, when soft bulletin came out, we just, you know, uh, there, there weren't a lot of distorted guitars happening at that point. There was a lot of, you know, um, orchestral textures and acoustic piano and different keyboards and stuff. And at the time we thought no one's probably going to buy this record and it'll get us kicked off Warner brothers, but we made a record we wanted to make and we felt pretty good about it. And man, to our surprise, people seemed to really embrace the whole thing. So, but it was just, it was part luck and part just feeling like we had to change and kind of move forward and partly just being sick of just being a traditional rock band, you know? So what about your transition, Steven, from a drummer to a guitarist and a keyboardist? Yeah. How did that happen? Yeah, when I when I first joined, I joined as, as a drummer, and that was that's what I was focusing on at that time. I just wanted to be like a really wild rock drummer, you know. Um, uh, and I guess pretty quickly, Wayne and I became comfortable, you know, with each other's musical ideas. I always tell the joke, you know, what's the last thing the drummer said before he got fired? Hey guys, I have got a new song. <laughs> but, yeah. I'm sure, you've heard that that joke. Yeah. But um, but early on, we you know I would play a musical idea for him, guitar or piano or whatever. Back then, it's usually guitar, although I've, I've been playing piano since I was, I started messing with piano when I was about 12, I think. Anyway, so yeah, we got comfortable with each other and we just started writing more th- things together. And as that, you know, by the end of making Klaus Taste Metallic, I was writing a lot of stuff with him for the group. And so when we were transitioning to Zyreka and the Soft Bulletin, 
I was just, I, at that point, I was writing as much music as Wayne was. He's definitely always a lyricist, but um, musically, I would carry a lot of the weight, you know. And it's just something that happened over time. And um, I was lucky that, uh, you know, Wayne, because he, he is the leader of the band, really. I mean, he's, he's the dude, you know. It's, he and Michael started the band in 1983, and it's their band. But Wayne, Wayne's the man, you know. He's the artistic and visual kind of leader of the whole thing. And he, but he relies on me for a lot of the music, but um, we became pretty comfortable and uh, having his confidence kind of pushed me to keep trying with my ideas. And they just, uh, a lot of times seem to work out the ones that didn't, you don't know about. And the ones that did, you have heard and maybe you like, so that's pretty much the long and short of it. So another parallel, Stephen, we can draw to rush. Getty, Alex and Neil were together for decades, just like you, Wayne and Michael have been together for decades. Mm -hmm. How do you guys make that work? What's the secret? To making that work with you three? I don't know what the secret is. I think a lot of us, we were very lucky. You know, we all get along really well. Um, Michael and Wayne are like Jedi masters in the way they kind of communicate sometimes because they've known each other for so long. You know, we figured they started the band in 1983. So it's going to be 40 years here in just a couple few years, you know, but they're like, you know, they're just like old married couple or something. But um, I think we, I don't, I don't know if there's a secret. We just, you know, we got lucky and the way things are, we don't have to spend so much time on the road all the time. There was a period we were on the road all the time. And I think that starts to, that starts to weigh people down. That starts to make some tensions arise, you know, but we always seem to get enough of a time at home to reset. And by the time we get back on the road, it's like, all right, cool. It's time to tour again. We've been fortunate to have a schedule that works for all of us. And now Wayne's got a young, a young son and I've got two kids and, so we're just, and the other guys that play with us, you know, there's other guys with, with children. So we're able to respect more of each other's personal space, but it was not really a secret. We just kind of seem to genuinely, I don't know, get along. I don't really know what else to say, you know? I think one of the, if, uh, from an outsider perspective, that is one of the secrets to a, a long, you know, band has been around for a long time is collaboration, not only within the band, outside the band with producers and things like that. And you guys are just, you guys are crazy with the collaborations. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Like, I find that I find that a lot of rock musicians are a lot less parochial about their musical tastes than their fans are. Mm -hmm. A lot of fans will find a lane and be and kind of stick in the lane, but great musicians, their lanes are much wider and they'll go off on all the exits. And because you guys have definitely, you know, Miley Cyrus is one that you would never think. I thought that, that might be the first name you would say. Yes. Yeah. People wouldn't think necessarily that the Flaming Lips would make great albums with Miley Cyrus. How do these collaborations come about? Well, a lot of them are just Wayne wanting to, you know, I, I think that started with Miley Cyrus tweeted happy birthday to him on Twitter. This was like back in 2013 or 2012. And, you know, a lot of people have been like, oh, Miley Cyrus, who gives a shit? But he actually reached out to her and they started communicating. And um, before you knew it, uh, we were talking about trying to make some music with her, which I thought was just a batshit crazy idea at first, you know. <laughs> and then you, you get to know her and you work with her, and she's wonderful, and she really can sing well, and she's fun to be around. So, But I, I understand people thinking, all right, man, that's just too weird, you know. Um, but uh, we all like to work with uh, people other than the Flaming Lips, and, and Wayne really likes to jump outside and find other people to do stuff with. You know, that record uh, we made of the Beatles, uh, Sergeant Pepper cover, you know, record that's got like eight or nine different artists on it. And to, to Wayne, that's like, that's kind of heaven to work with so many different people, you know? And then it gives us a break from having it to be just the flaming lips, you know, to do this other thing, walk away from just being us creating it. 
when we come back to it, it's a little, it's a little, it's like a, it's a breath of fresh air, you know? Um, But that is mostly Wayne doing that, wanting to work with, you know, uh, Miley Cyrus is definitely the best example, but uh, you know, all this, all the stuff we've done over the years, it's just, I I don't know, I guess for some bands that wouldn't be a a natural thing, but for us, it just feels, it feels, it feels good to do that. You know, I don't really have much more of an answer, but yeah. But one of another interesting thing that you do is your collaboration with uh, Steve Burns, the children's, would you call it, I'm assuming children's music would be the general category of those things, although they are not kids bops. Yeah, we call it adult, we call it parent or adult friendly psychedelic children's rock is what there we you call go. it. So. That's um, a good, good explanation <laughs> of it. Yeah. Because I those songs, it reminds me a lot of the They Might Be Giants kids albums in that they respect the intelligence, not only of the children, but of the adults who are definitely going to have to listen to this music all the time. Yeah. I mean, Steve is great with that. He and I are still really good friends to this day. He's really good about, is this lyric too, you know, is this, is this uh, what's the word I'm looking for? You know, are you, are you singing down to the kids? You know, he would always worry about, you know, being, being too, I can't think of the word. It's a simple word, but it's escaping me right now. Patronizing to to young kids, you know, because he was on that show Blues Clues and he dealt with yeah. young children all the time. So he was always wanting to do something that was educational, but also not wanting to be offensively about, you know, singing to just little kids and insulting their intelligence. And, and that was pretty fun. You know, that was a couple of his rules that I want it to be educational if I can make it educational and let's make sure we're not patronizing to the young children or their parents, you know? And, and then the music we did, that was just a, a mishmash of all our influences from, you know, 1970s orange juice commercials to black Sabbath to, you know, just <laughs> for me, a lot of stuff, I was just trying to recreate stuff I saw on Sesame street or stuff from Saturday morning cartoons when I was growing up. I was just kind of trying to do that, you know? So, so Steven, you mentioned the, the cover album you did of Sergeant Peppers There's also the dark side of the moon you guys did and the King Crimson record. Yeah. Yeah. Any possibility you could possibly do a rush album. Would Wayne be on board with that? He might, it, it, it depends, you know, uh, I know he does like some rush, but it's funny. I think his favorite rush song is actually working man. <laughs> so It's like, well, you know, that's the one without Neil Peart. And he's like, yeah, yeah. I, I just like the, I just like the simplicity of it. It's just such a, you know, it is, it's a very simple riff, but, um, we, I bet I could talk him into it. I would want us to do, even though it's not my favorite record, I would want us to do 2112 is what I'd want us to try to do. Or <laughs> I guess Signals is too, maybe too specifically. I, I think he wouldn't go for the new waveness of that one. But maybe he does like it. I don't know. If I have to pick a favorite record out of all of them, this is really hard. I, I, actually, I think I have to go with Signals. That's the one for me that is, they're moving forward. They're trying new shit. You know, it's like, that must have that must have been a weird feeling to go from hemispheres to permanent waves, like making that big shift. It's a crazy big shift, you know. It is. And by the time you get the signals, it's man, they're just. I just feel like that record crystallizes everything that's great about Rush. You know, you still have some long passages, and, and you have some of the greatest lyrics. But the way everything's recorded, and there's you know, it's not all keyboards, but there's a lot more keyboards that sound really great. I'm babbling now, but um, <laughs> if the Flame Lips were going to do it, I bet we would try to do twenty one twelve. Yeah, before um, we got together tonight, Steve and I were talking about which album we'd like to see the, the Flaming Lips do, and we decided it would be Caress of Steel. So it's really? funny that, that that was your first the first album that turned you on to them. And we thought you guys would do a great job with The Fountain of Lemneth, because I love The Fountain of Lemneth. I feel like, you know, the whole thing, and especially No One at the Bridge, is one of the most overlooked things about Rush. And 
I guess they'd never performed it live ever. The Fountain of Lemnath, like they never performed it live. That's, that's the word on the street. That's the word on the street. We've heard two stories. We heard they may have played it once, but we haven't verified it. Yeah, I mean, God, there's just so much good shit on that, that crazy panacea. I mean, I could go on and on. Derek Brown, our guitar player, keyboard player that's been with us since 2009, man, he knows Caress and Steel like I do, up, up and down, really. And I have to say, we both agree that I think I'm going bald is not something I know if I'd want to cover, but we might, be, we might find a way to do it. But um, the rest of the record, we both know very well. And no, no one at the bridge, I would love to just do a version of just that. But um, maybe it should be Caress of Steel. Because um, that's still got the, some great you know, rock elements, you know, the riff to Bastille Day. And yeah. I, have to, I, have to, I have to talk to Wayne about that. I'm not sure if he even really knows about that record, but maybe he does. We have parallels. Like, he's eight years older than me, but... He had four older brothers, and I had two older brothers, and you know what I mean? So we had these parallels of having older brothers that were into drugs and music and influenced our lives and stuff. So maybe he knows some of a crest of steel, but uh, I'll talk to him about that. I, I seriously will. I'm going to talk to him about covering a Rush album, see, see what the first response is. <laughs> maybe you can try playing a couple of Rush songs live first and see how that goes. <laughs> <laughs> well, if we did, it would be completely a studio mutation creation thing. You know, I don't think it would be like, Hey, we're going to play these songs live and record them. We would definitely do, you know, I don't know if you guys have heard any of the electric worm stuff that came out. We did a cover of heart of the sunrise by yes. Oh, wow. That must've been great. I haven't heard that. But we took all the scronky twiddly bits, which I love, but Wayne gets tired of some of that stuff. And we straighten it out the beat from four, three, four to four, four. But it's a really dreamy, trippy version of Heart of the Sunrise. I imagine we do some stuff like that we, if we cover Rush. So, yeah, that's that's what I'm hoping for. Yeah, check out <laughs> Elect, uh, Electric Worms, W U R M S, uh, Heart of the Sunrise. It's it's only like three and a half, four minutes long. You know, and their version is like nine minutes long. We didn't do a a glorious tribute like we should have, but we did a mutated version, but um, it's, it's worth checking out, but maybe that's what we would do with uh, Caress of Steel or 2112. So why don't I edit in a portion of the song right now so Rush fans can hear it? Yeah, it's a great idea. love it yeah so do i man you know i was just going to ask you steven about the electric worms i guess would you call it a side project is it a side project is it a complimentary project 
How would you classify that? Well, I feel like it's such a part of the Flaming Lips catalog in a way that's not really a side project. You know, it's a, yeah, it's a, yeah. What was the other word, the other term you used? Complimentary? I guess complimentary, because that is Wayne and I, and the the band we worked with, uh, Linear Downfall from Nashville, they were involved in some of the record and they toured with us, but mostly it was just Wayne and I in the studio doing stuff with uh, Wayne's nephew. So I don't know if I'd call it a side project. I feel like if it was just one of us, that would be a side project. But since there's two of us doing it from the Flaming Lips, it's more of a, you know, extracurricular record. <laughs> so, <laughs> What's different? Like, what, was there something in the Flaming Lips that you felt you couldn't do under the Flaming Lips name that you felt like you could do or wanted to explore in a different area? Well, I think uh, I think what it is, we wanted to invent this band just so we could do this music. And we could do any of those songs with the Flaming Lips, and I think it would work, you know. But we kind of wanted to create this other identity of, like, here's this kind of scrunky, kind of prog, kind of kraut rock-influenced band called the Electric Worms. And they dress weird, and here's what they look like. And, you know, we... we you know, we had me as kind of the front person, the front man, and Wayne was just kind of lights and percussion. That was a different thing. Um, and, and like I said, I think any of the songs could have worked as a Flaming Lips song, but we just wanted to try this thing as, I guess it's kind of like Paul McCartney on Sgt. Pepper's. Even though it is a Beatles record, he wanted to create this whole other, you know, band of different characters and stuff. And it was kind of based on that, I guess. But it was partly just uh, wanting to do something different, but, uh, you know, not really. I don't know, just doing something, doing something different. So, right. Yeah. I can't really describe it, but yeah. So let's get back to Rush, Stephen. the song Limelight for Moving Pictures. Did the lyrics of that song take on a different meaning for you once you began living in the limelight yourself? Can you relate to Neil Peart's feelings about that song and the lyrics? Right. Um, I, I understand what it means. And, and obviously I, you know, became the successful musician. But to me, just the way I experienced the song when it first came out and the way Getty Lee's voice sounds on that song, it just has always sounded exactly the same to me. It's like, I know the lyrics mean this thing. And once I became whatever, a person that plays in the limelight, did it change? No, it's just always had the same, just has always had the same feeling to me, which is a, a feeling of like caution and kind of sadness. Um, but it hasn't, it hasn't really changed for me since I've had my own success in the limelight, per se, you know, so, yeah. So, 70s Rush. Let's talk about 70s Rush. After 2112, they had their, you know, they had whatever they wanted, you know what I mean? Freedom from the record company. And then they kind of, you know, make a left turn <laughs> into a farewell to Kings. You were listening to them at that time. How did you, how did you like that turn? Well, you know, I was young enough where I wouldn't have my perception of it wouldn't have been like a cynical 30 year old or something. You know what I mean? To me, it was just all just this wonderful magic, you know, like, um, like we didn't have all the queen records, but we had Night at the opera and we had queen two. And those two queen records are just so seared in my brain from such a young age, you know, even though, you know, you had ja jazz and uh, sheer heart attack and you know, all the other ones, news of the world, those two are just seared in my brain. So that series of rush records, even though they made that switch to me, it wasn't like some crazy thing. It was just this new, wonderful music by this crazy band. And it's got this album cover with this kind of marionette King and the destroyed city behind it. I can stare at the pictures of the musicians on the back cover for hours. And it was just, um, I guess I, I was aware that there was keyboards and stuff, but not like, I wasn't aware of the, of what a shift it was till I was older, you know, and played my own music. So at the time when it was happening, it was just, it was new rush music and it was wonderful. I remember the first time I heard hemisphere is the night it came out. 
And I was with my brother and his friends, and they were all stoned. And we were driving to Houston from Rosenberg, Texas. And KLOL, KLOL 101 in Houston played Hemispheres in its entirety. And it was a fucking weird experience. Because <laughs> that record's weird. I mean, that is a weird it's a record, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's, very it's, weird it's, record. Yeah, I mean, those long songs and, man, just the way Getty Lee's voice sounds on that record. It's one of my favorites, really, just the way he sounds. But um, it was just such a surreal experience, you know? So, again, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be the guy saying, man, now, now they're using more time signatures and they're doing crazier stuff like this. Why don't they rock more like they did on this record? I wasn't to that stage at all. I was just like, my mind was blown by everything that was coming out and I was hearing all the things around me, you know? Yeah, definitely Hemispheres. When I, when I first started listening to Rush, and I don't know what order I got the albums in, but when I got Hemispheres, I was just insane in my head. I could not believe that the Hemispheres song was even possible. It's, it's, um, man, it's, it's, it's wonderful. It really is wonderful. Um, yeah, that's, there's so, so much good stuff on there. Uh, and you know, the end of Fairwater King's Sickness X1, I don't, is that Neil Purr? You saw him doing the narration. I think it's the Neil. In Constellation. Okay. Yeah. That is just so bad. I just, so evil sounding and badass <laughs> and just, yeah. uh, you know, I could just put that on a loop and just listen to that intro over and over again. You know? And then the guitar chords at the end, all, they're all minor chords that walk up in thirds, you know, um, Anyway, uh, so to end with that on one record and then continue this whole story on, an, on, on the next record, it's, man, it's pretty wild, you know. So, but back to what I was saying, I was still young enough where it was just, wow, this is, you know, I didn't know how to play guitar or keyboard, so I didn't know any music theory. So it was just sound coming at me that was just blowing my mind, you know. So, yeah. <laughs> so I read you guys played a benefit show with Rush back in 2004. Is, is that true? It was uh, fall of 2003. Yeah, it was a SARS benefit in Toronto. Um, did you get a chance to meet them? Well, we did, but um, man, you know, this is, okay, this is kind of a shame because in my life, in, in my adulthood, I've gone through phases where I've always loved Rush, but I'll go through phases where I go down a deep rabbit hole where I'm way into them, you know, like I'll listen to nothing but hemispheres for six months, seriously, you know, or I'll listen to nothing but signals for, you know, months, and I'll go through these phases, and right when we played that SARS benefit, I wasn't in one of my Rush phases, so we had the chance to meet them, and I got to shake Getty and Alex's hand. Uh, Neil stayed backstage, but it didn't really bowl me over, and I didn't get anything signed, and I could have. So, like, a couple years later, I'm like, man, why don't I talk more to them? Because they seem like they're open to talking to people, you know? And um, But it was partly nerves, too. It was partly like, holy shit, this is Rush, you know? Like, we got to <laughs> stand in the same space as them. It was just mind-boggling, you know? Like, at the end of the day, the Rolling Stones took a picture with all the bands, and we got to see all the other bands uh, react like we did to people like Rush because all the other bands were like, holy shit, it's the Rolling Stones, you know? And the way it was set up was the Rolling Stones were literally just going to walk into the room, stand there for 30 seconds, take a bunch of pictures and walk away. There was no hanging out, you know? So we got to see ACDC and Rush and uh, guess who all like, oh man, it's the Stones. You know, so we got to see that them ex- have that same experience as us. It was pretty fun. So, but I didn't dive deeper into them that day. I, w- I wish I had, but I did not. So what about Alex Lifeson as an influence on you? You mentioned that Neil influenced your drumming. You're also a guitarist. How about Alex's influence on your guitar playing? I think he's more of an influence on my guitar playing than Neil is on my drumming at the end of the day. I just, you know, I I love it all, but I I think Alex's, um, some of his stuff is just, 
it's just interesting that people that in ways that people don't even understand, you know, like say the last quarter of limelight, you know, it sounds like it could just be a, is it a sharp? Is that the key? It's in? No, I can't remember. It sounds like it just could be a minor chord, but it's actually a suspended fourth chord, you know, and until you really start checking stuff out, you just would not know that. And every time I hear a bar band play Tom Sawyer, they always play the third chord wrong, and it really bums me out. But anyway, um, I, I would say that Alex is more of an influence on my guitar playing and some of the harmonic things than Neil was, Neil's drumming was. We've noticed that Alex is more of an improviser, and Neil was more structured. Everything was planned out. Yeah, always like that. How about you as a musician? Are you more of a structured guy or an improvisational well it depends on what it is you know like uh, something like race for the prize because i played drums on that one still i just played exactly as it is on the record i'm just like neil like neil would you know that was one thing i liked about them lives like it was kind of a feat to play exactly what he did on the record and if he played anything different he did it intentionally and you go oh that's different kind of like getty on the bass if he did anything different uh there's something he does on exit stage left that he doesn't do on uh la villa strangiotto and you're like hey that's different you know (laughs) It's that nerd, it, you know, it gets that nerdy. But um, I think I go both ways, you know, like um, some of the stuff we were playing in for our record, Oxy Melody, which is the record before American Head, was set up so that we could stretch out and play bits longer. And we would a lot, a lot of the nights, you know. So we have songs that we do more improvising in, and we have songs that are, we just we just play the song like it is in the, on the studio version and just keep it exactly like that. So, but we go both ways. I go both ways, I guess. Yeah, that was definitely a, a critique of Rush is that they would come out and play the songs just like they are on the records. And I'm like, yeah, I want to hear the songs as they are on the record. You know what I mean? The, the songs are so good. I think you can, you can have both. I mean, like, I, I love Yes, but even, even the earliest recorded live Yes, it just, I just don't think they did a good job of playing their stuff live. And it always bums me out because I like Yes songs. You know, I know that, I know that Alan White had like a week to learn all those drum parts or most of them or whatever, but, and that is, that is really crazy something, but even Bill Bruford, you know, like a live version of heart of the sunrise, like, man, it's just not, they just, he just doesn't seem to care about how it sounds compared to the, the recordings, you know, whereas Rush walks out and they're going to play YYZ, they're going to play exactly like YYZ, except for the drum solo, he's going to throw in the middle, you know? Um, mm-hmm. So, but, uh, and, and you can have it both ways. You know, if the velvet underground came out and played their songs exactly like they're on record every night, you might get bored. But if, they have 20 minutes of howling feedback and improvisation. You're like, that works for them. But right. it's like a break in uh, La Villa Strangiato on exit stage left. I think they add one little passage to it. And I remember when that came out and I heard, it, I was like, whoa, they did something different on this one. Crazy. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it was that nerdy, you know? And did you try to figure it out then? No, it was, you know, I was in seventh grade. So it was before I was playing guitar or keyboards and a lot of the drum, a lot of his drums, uh, like I say on the opening fill, the digital man or just in some realm that I'll never even be able to figure out. So I just, I just enjoy it and don't try to actually figure it out, you know? And anyway. <laughs> so if we were to ask you what your favorite Rush song is, is, is it 2112? Is it La Villa Strangiato? Well, see, see, I, again, I go through phases. That's tough. That is really tough right now. It's, and it's, you know, man, it's just one of their most obvious choices right now. It's subdivisions. I came across someone's posting uh, isolated tracks and so you can hear like Digital Man, just the electric bass. And whoever's doing that, thank you. I applaud you. Uh, someone put out the, the isolated vocals to subdivisions and it just got me into the song all over again. And I've always loved that song. But, you know, the lyrics, the way the keyboards sound, the guitar solo is just, it's just all perfect to me. It's like 
here's Rush in the early 80s, like peering out into the future. You know, it's like we have our whole prog rock past and stuff, and we'll have some, some time changes and whatnot. But this is all about projecting into the future. And I don't know. It's, it's, it's definitely subdivisions right now. So <laughs> it could change, though. <laughs> yeah, a while ago, actually, when we first started the podcast, I think it was, Steve, was it Louder Sound or Louder.com, whichever? I believe it was Ultimate Classic Rock. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, Ultimate Classic Rock. They're the ones they listed or ranked every single Rush song from number one to number 176 or whatever. And so Steve and I were like, ah, we should do that. Impossible. Impossible to do that. Like naming from memory. No, just rank them. It's a ranking. Oh, a ranking thing. Yeah, oh, that's too much. That's too much to ask. Yeah. Because Steve and I, were, we started to do it. We're like, yeah, it'd be fun. And there's like 80 songs up front that are like, I love these songs. Like, how am I going to parse those? It's impossible. It, it is like saying your favorite record of all time. That's really, that's tough. I can yeah. say t- my favorite 50 records of all time, but I can't say <laughs> my, even my top 10, you know? I mean, in general, it's, that's just too much to ask of somebody. But if I had to pick one, my favorite rest song right now, it's Subdivisions. For a while, it, I went back to the studio version of Lakeside Park. Just man, there's just something magical about that. And a lot of this is memories of my brothers. You know, both of my older brothers have passed away, so it's like nostalgia thinking about them. And you know, uh, I, this is a sidebar, but Eddie Van Halen just died. So the day the first record, Van Halen record, came out, my brothers went to Kmart or wherever and bought it. They'd seen Van Halen open for Black Sabbath before they even had a record out. So no one knew who Van Halen was. And they came home talking about this band, Van Halen, and how amazing they were and how they just blew Sabbath off the fucking stage, right? And so everyone was like, Van Halen, that's a dumb name. Sounds like Van Morrison or something. So anyway, so the day the record comes out, they go get it, and they invite like eight of their stoner friends to come over from around the neighborhood. You could see the beanbags and the bongs and the blacklight posters. You could see the whole scene, you know? And they put it on. It's running with the devil and the eruption. You really got me. And I got to watch these dudes and myself hear that record for the first time, it, it was just a mind-boggling experience. <laughs> and I was nine at that time, so I was getting more aware of what was going on. You know, I just got to see these guys' mouths drop to the floor, and it was like, wow, you know, uh, what was my point in this? Though? <laughs> so I guess that I just got to hear, I got to hear Van Halen, I got to hear Van Halen when they first, first came, up, came out. So, um, yeah. <laughs> you know, another thing I wanted to ask you about, Stephen, is the Sorcerer's Orphan podcast, which is fantastic. Oh, thanks. Yeah. What a great idea this is. Why don't other artists give you this kind of in-depth background information? I mean, you're breaking down some of your most iconic songs. Tell us how you came up with this idea and how it came to fruition. Well, what happened was um, I did a podcast uh, called the, The Trap Set with this guy, Joe Wong. It's a wonderful, it's a wonderful podcast. He's had everybody from I think maybe Neil Peart was on uh, everyone from Bill Ward of Black Sabbath to Janet Weiss of Slater Kenny to me to Cliff Skurlock, who also played drums with us. So I did a, I did an episode of his podcast with him and Wayne heard it. And he said, you know, when you're talking to Joe, the way you talk and the way you explain things, I think you would be, you would be great if you had your own podcast and just be, you could have your own podcast and talk about flaming lips crap. And I was like, yeah, sure. It's a great idea. And about a month later, he's like, well, when are we starting on the, the podcast? <laughs> like, oh, you're, you're serious. He's like, yeah, I really want to do this. So, you know, the, I think the first, the very first one we did, the Enthusiasm for Life song, you know, it was such a deep cut that I think it wouldn't have been as interesting to people from the get-go if it had been Do You Realize or something like that, you know? Mm-hmm. 
So we moved away from the deep cuts after two or three episodes and started focusing on th- more things that more people know. So we get to Superman, you know, and we get to race, you know, uh, when we get to do, you know, all the different, do you realize all the different songs? So, but it was really Wayne just thought that um, we should do a podcast and I'm, I'm really good with numbers and years and dates and what we did with, you know, this time, this year and what tour was this tour, you know, all that kind of step specific information. And we're, we have all those tracks available to us to go back and explore things. I mean, it's our music that we own and it's all been turned, converted to a uh, hard drive. So anything we want to look up, we can look up pretty easily and say, what was that guitar track by itself? And that's a great thing. We're just playing our own music. You know, we're not, we're not needing other people's music for our podcast. We're just playing our own. So, um, but yeah, that was his idea, and uh, we just do them here at my house. This little studio right here. All the episodes have been done here, so appreciate uh, appreciate the uh, props. We're about to start on the next one, so I think the last one was was it? Do you realize was that the last one? I'm getting confused now, but um, I forget. I think you have eight episodes now. I think we have eight. Yeah, yeah. So I think we're going to start on, on the next one here really soon. Um, we were just waiting for American Head or our last album to come out, and you know, see how that settles. And now with the COVID happening, you know, we're just everything is just kind of huh. You're trying to trying to navigate your way through this this weird stuff, and but we're going to start on a new uh, episode pretty soon. My favorite was the story you told in the "She Don't Use Jelly" episode about being yeah. on Beverly Hills 90210. <laughs> <laughs> Man, that story gets a lot of mileage, you know. Um, <laughs> it was, you know, and back then, you know, the world we live in now, all of us, you know, all, everything is so uh, I don't know, cross pollinated, and every you know, there's social media, so everything. You know, I find myself following Richard Marks on Twitter, you know, Twitter, sorry, Twitter, Twitter, Twitter. And if someone would have told me 20 years ago, you're going to follow Richard Marks on Twitter, I'd be like, what the fuck's Twitter? And why would I be listening to anything Richard Marks has to say? You know what I mean? We're so cross-pollinated with everything that something like the Flaming Lips Beyond 90210 doesn't seem that weird. But in 1995, it seemed kind of weird, you know, and I think a lot of people were put off by it at first. And we just thought it was it'd be funny as hell, funny and fun. And it ended up being all of the above. It was just such a surreal, weird thing for us to be in the same space as some of these people, you know, the cast. And uh, yeah, I, it was one of my favorite memories of the, the nineties uh, flaming lips, you know? <laughs> you know, another thing I wanted to ask you about Steven is the bubble show that you guys recently did, which looked really cool. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, yeah, I, you know, to people that don't know the history of the flaming lips, Wayne has been, walking on top of the crowd in a quote unquote space bubble since 2004. Um, and it's just one of our things that we do. One of the things he does, it's, it's become kind of iconic, I suppose he's been doing it for years, but since the COVID thing happened and all that, and we're not performing anywhere, uh, he had this idea, like what if we could get, you know, the audience in bubbles too. So everyone would be safe from everybody. Could we make that work? And it's very, it's still in the very early stages, but um, like we're dealing with how long can you be in the bubble before you start to run out of oxygen? And the answer is a lot longer than you would think. It really is. It's kind of, it's crazy how, yeah, before you start to kind of run out of oxygen, it's, it's a good 30, 40 minutes. Now they do get hot, but so there's, there's the breathing thing. There's the fire hazard possibility. What, what do we do about fire hazard and people getting in out of the bubbles? But we thought it went well enough at this show, which was really a video shoot. We didn't actually perform. We, we shot videos, but we did get people in the bubbles. And I think the next move is us trying to, us trying to literally play instead of just lip syncing for videos. But, and there's a lot of things to figure out. And I, we don't want people to think we're being insensitive about what's happening right now. with the COVID and you know what I mean? People being quarantined because you don't want to do that. I mean, a lot of people are really having a hard time. A lot of people are suffering. 
you know, we're pretty lucky so far. We, we have money, we can pay the rent, you know, but um, so we don't want to be insensitive to this whole thing that's going on. But I think we do want to explore the possibility of playing these, playing a show while this is happening and making it something that could be a viable, viable way for us to perform. And for people, if they wanted to come out and experience what, what it's like. So, but it's very, very early stages right now. Um, but it is a serious endeavor. It's not, it's not something we're joking about. I think we really are trying to push forward with it. So there you go. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, Steve uh, texted me a link to your appearance on uh, Colbert in the bubbles. And as soon as I saw that, I texted him back. I said, we're going to whatever, wh- whatever this, wherever this is, we're going to it. I don't care where it is. I'm going to be in a bubble watching a show. It's such a great idea. Yeah, well, another cool thing about it is the bubbles that uh, he bought, you can fit three or four people in each bubble. So if you come with your party, you and your wife and your two children or whatever, you guys can all be in the bubble together. You're, you're isolated from everybody else. Uh, one of the things to work out is how people get in and out of the bubble safely without being close to other people. And then there's the bathroom. And mm. we talk about the sound because it sounds kind of weird, but I'm proposing that everyone has, it brings their own headphones and you just Bluetooth to our master mix. You're all set, you know? and that's you a great idea. It doesn't have to sound weird. It can sound like super hi-fi. And we did something like that back in 1999 on our soft bulletin tours where we'd hand out headphones and we just broadcast, I forget, like a low frequency on the dial there that was unused. And we just broadcast our mix so you could listen to our mixes on the headphones while you're actually walking around and checking out the show. Um, so, and now with Bluetooth, it's so much easier. So, so we're looking at all these, these different things. And yeah, you guys could come. You'd have your own bubble and... We're just working out the bathroom breaks, what people do about drinking, uh, mm-hmm. you know, things like that. So, but definitely trying mm-hmm. to move forward. Definitely. I'm definitely looking forward to it. And, you know, on the, on the Colbert show, um, I was curious about the song choice, if that had any comment on things today, because you did race for the prize. Right, right. Um, I, so sure. is that song what I think it's about? Uh, you know, it starts off, you know, two scientists are racing for the good of all mankind. So are they... They're looking for a cure. They're looking. That's the prize that they're looking the for. The cure that is the prize. Yeah, it could right. definitely. It could be about a vaccine right now for sure. I mean, absolutely. I think that was one of the things that was in the reason why we chose that. I think um, it was between that. And Do you realize? And do you realize might be a more famous song. We just felt race for the prize was more timely, you know, and yeah. um, and it just kind of rocks more. I think anyway, race for the prize does. So um, yeah, it was uh, you know not too much decision. Wasn't too agonizing making that decision. It seemed to mm-hmm. make. You know, uh, yeah. Um, for these times, it just seemed to be like a perfect message song, you know? So. Yeah, it definitely was. Mm. So on September 11th, Steve and the Flaming Lips released a new album called American Head. Mm-hmm. It's fantastic. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about that album? Yeah, thank you. Yeah. It's my, it's my favorite we've done in a while. Um, it was really, you know, because uh, we, do, we do a lot of stuff. And a couple of years ago... I think it's when Tom Petty died. Actually, I know it's when Tom Petty died. You know, we, it, it was kind of like Neil Peart dying, like, man, really? This just happened? You know, it's just happened again with Eddie Van Halen. You're like, what, 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 what the fuck, you know? <laughs> so when Tom Petty died, I think we were all surprised. You know, I love Tom Petty. I mean, everyone loves Tom Petty. But Wayne started talking about, you know, I, I had this feeling like we should do our Americana Tom Petty record, like embrace the fact that we're an American band, you know, because we've never really – we are a band from America, but we've never really talked about ourselves as being an American band. You know, we've never done the Grand Funk Railroad trip. So <laughs> he started talking about wanting to do songs that were more like acoustic based, maybe less electronic than our last couple of records. And um, it's, that's, it kind of started from there. So I guess 
uh, the middle of 2018, he started working on some ideas. I started working on stuff here at home. And a lot of the stuff I recorded here at home actually ended up on the record. You know, the beginning of Will You Return, which is the very first song. Uh, a lot of the sounds on Flowers of Neptune 6. A, a lot of the record. But um, And as we were going, he had this, this thing about the Tom Petty Americana. And as we kept going, Wayne said, you know, what if we kind of frame the songs with lyrics that are about us growing up and our families and our siblings and because his brothers and sister did drugs and car crashes and my brother went to prison and people, you know, died from drug overdoses and car crash, you know, stuff like that. Really just it's sad, you know, but stuff that would make interesting subject matter for a song. If you want to you know, sing about your youth and kind of nostalgia and things like that, but the kind of a sad edge of nostalgia. So it was all those things kind of played together. And just over the course of a couple of years, it got shaped into this record that's, you know, I think all the songs have a similar kind of vibe to them. And uh, the American head title just means just, you know, how Americans think or the title can mean anything you want, but it was, um, it was the first time that Wayne and I worked so close together for on so many songs for the, like the whole record that, and I I really like that about it. I I like when we work together um, and just like kind of laser focus on something, but excuse me. Um, But that's pretty much it. It was, you know, to make a record that was more, I don't Americana for lack of a better term and just more, you know, less, less electronic, which it certainly is. There's you know more acoustic guitars and there's, you know, horns and there's a lot of acoustic drums on this record more than we've done in a long time. So, and it just felt nice to, it felt like we were kind of reacting to the last couple of records, which were really electronic, but then some people were like, it kind of sounds like the soft bullet to me. And we're like, that's, that's okay. You know, we're kind of, it feels like we're going back to some nostalgic, nostalgia for the soft bulletin that's that's fine too i'm not sure how you hear it but um it definitely felt like a reaction to our last couple of records you know yeah i was going to ask if it was a, a reaction just to where you are in your lives well at a certain point people are just like you know reminisce about things that happened and they want to talk about it oh yeah all, all of those things you know i think uh wayne being a dad now things have changed a lot for him just that experience you know it's it's a, you know, he's, he's really, I've never seen him so happy actually right now. He, he and his wife and their little baby boy, I've, I've never seen him as happy as, as, as he is right now. Um, so yeah, I wanted to sing these things because it seems like enough time has passed where you could kind of filter it through nostalgia and memories of your childhood and whatnot. So, you know, it just seemed, it just, every song that we were doing, it just seemed right. You know, like, like every time it, we started working on a new song and he started getting the lyrics together and the song started coming together, it felt like, Hey, this song belongs on this record too, you know? And one cool thing that Wayne does that I like is as early as possible, he tries to get the imagery and the artwork for the record together. So then you're making music knowing what it's, what the visual image is going to look like of the record. To me, that's very helpful, you know? Um, like the cover of the Soft Bullets and when he found that picture and said, this is what we're going to use for the cover. A lot of things just kind of like click in your brain, you know what I mean? And it's really helpful. And so when he came up with the American Head image, that's a, a picture of his oldest brother, Tommy, with the weird paint splotches on it. It just somehow, and it's black and white, it just somehow kind of cemented some of the ideas we were already working on, if that makes sense. Um, yeah, <laughs> I ramble a lot. So, <laughs> <laughs> One more parallel I wanted to make between you guys and Rush. Now, Rush fans, there are some Rush fans that like the entire catalog. There are other Rush fans like you, after Grace Under Pressure, yeah, they kind of dropped off. Now, I'd imagine with the Flaming Lips, it's, mm-hmm. it's a lot of the same thing. There are some fans that love everything you guys do. And because you guys are so different, from album to album, there might be a fan that likes the Soft Bulletin or or they like Transmission from the Satellite Heart. How do you feel about fans who only like certain segments of what the Flaming Lips do? Oh, I have no problem with that. You know, I, I totally understand it. I mean, I say that about Rush, you know. I say that about 
a lot of bands, I, you know, I'm not going to go through them, but I love so much of their music and there's some of their music that I just, I don't care about it. It doesn't speak to me. It doesn't mean anything to me. And, uh, you know, I've seen people say, you know, well, after, you know, after a hit to death, when they got the new guys, they started to suck. I've even seen that. So I'm, I have no problem with any of it. If you like, you know, if you like us up to She Don't Use Jelly and then you think we suck or you, you think Soft Bullets until now is great and before was terrible, hey, more power to you. I got no problem with any of it. So even if you don't like us at all, go ahead. <laughs> Live your life. <laughs> so, I, I totally understand it. You know, I, have a lot of, I have a lot of bands that are like that for me. So, yeah. Well, you can count me and Jerry among the fans of like <laughs> everything you do. Yeah. Oh, well, thanks. Stephen Drozd, thanks so much for joining us on the Rush Fancast today. It was a fascinating conversation. You guys are great. Yeah, you guys are great. I really appreciate being on. So I look forward to, to hearing the uh, edited version of my bla- blathering. So, yeah. <laughs> I look forward to Steve editing my blatherings every week as well. So. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, it's good talking to you guys. Oh, thanks. I know I say this every time we have a guest on, Jer, but how amazing was that, really? That was great. Yeah. I love the Flaming Lips. We've talked about the Flaming Lips so much. I love them. They, they really are amazing, and you really can draw quite a few parallels to the Flaming Lips and Rush. Yeah. They do what they want to do, and their fans go along for the ride, just like Rush did. Yeah, and the endless creativity and the, the constant, uh, for decades, how do you do that? How do you continue to make great music for decades? You're extremely talented. That's what it is. Yeah, I guess that's it. Yeah. And you're nice people. The thing is, Rush were three nice guys. And we haven't met Wayne or Michael, but clearly Wayne, Michael, and Steven are really nice guys who get along. Yeah, they're good friends. Mutual trust and respect goes a long way in a relationship. Absolutely. And we thank Steven for joining us today. You can find us on Twitter at Rush Fancast. Instagram, we are The Rushcast. Email Jerry, let him know what you thought of Steven's conversation with us at therushcast at gmail.com. The bass intro was done by Lex. He does an amazing job as always. And another amazing job is what Jerry does with our quote. And here it is. Really? Yeah, you do an amazing job with the quotes. Amazing? Amazing. Unless you forgot. No, I have something. And since the Flaming Lips are just an outrageously creative entity, I'm going to quote from Mission. Okay. Hold your fire. Keep it burning bright. Hold the flame till the dream ignites. A spirit with a vision is a dream with a mission. How perfect. Thanks. Thanks, Jerry. All right, see you later, Steve.